Sure, and I, I forgot to put the headset on, so you have to leave me on this one, Adam, thanks. Um, Michael did begin his internship with us this past week, too, so if you happen to stop in during the week, you may run into him running around the building. I don't know, he might take over in the next two weeks while Pastor Aaron and I are gone. It's, it's between him and Donna, they'll be arm wrestling who's in charge, I guess, so, so it's good to see that. I, I do want to just, before I start the sermon this evening, take just a moment and encourage all of us. If you remember, uh, roughly a year and a half ago now, we started our discipleship program here in the church. And we mentioned that God seems to bring baby Christians into churches that have a nursery ready to care for them. That's one reason we needed our discipleship program. We were not prepared to care for baby Christians. We didn't know what to do with people that, that were saved. Well, we've been working for a year and a half getting ready to have a nursery here, and God seems to be blessing. We've had, in the last about two months, or a month and a half, I guess, not even that far back, three professions of faith, plus another baby Christian tied to our church. So we're having connections with, with people that need to have Christian growth. I, I say that to encourage us because it's exciting, but I also say to challenge all of us because at this point we only have roughly 24 to 30 people engaged in discipleship. We're going quickly go beyond that if the Lord continues blessed. We need more people to get engaged. I didn't mention that this morning because I want to speak to this group. If you look around, there's less people here tonight than there were this morning. What we've been doing with our discipleship so far is going really in a peer relationship so we learn the material but also to help one another grow. I would encourage everyone here that is not engaged in discipleship, look who's not here tonight someone who's only here on Sunday mornings, and pick out that person as a potential discipleship person. Go to them and say, would you do discipleship together with me? Will you study the Foundations book? It's not deep material. All of you can handle it, especially when all you have to do is read the, the book and fill in the blank of the, the information that's in the verse it gives you. But it will get you comfortable with the material. You will be prepared to, to work with a, a baby Christian. You can be the nursery for the next Christian coming through, and you will help another member in our church grow in the next step by encouraging them in their Christian walk to, to do a little bit more than attend church Sunday morning. Let's be honest, the reason we're here on earth is not for anything other than serve Christ. That's why we're here. We want to be excited about serving Christ, and the way we're excited is by being engaged. Um, there's nothing more discouraging than a life that you just exist through, that, that you do nothing for Christ, that, that becomes ultimately the end of, of fulfillment, the end of excitement. And you, all you have to do is watch the people in Hollywood and see the misery that comes as they reach success. They either strive for more and more of that success that's just out of reach, or they become discouraged. If you serve Christ, that won't happen. I think we told you the story of the church that developed this program, or this material, not really a program, the material we're using. The, the pastor got a call from a, a church down in Florida, a pastor down there, because the pastor was wondering, what are you doing to me? Every year you had lots of people from your church that would come down here to Florida and be part of our church for a long time, and they're not coming anymore. Well, he wasn't aware of that, but he started looking around his church, and he found out, as he talked to people, they're like, well, why would I go to Florida for the winter when I've got disciples here that I can work with? I'm spending my life for Christ. Why go spend time sitting on a nursing home in Florida? Not a nursing home. What's it called? I'm sorry. Take that back. A retirement home. Or, or 
It, it quickly becomes a nursing home if that's all you do, though. Why would we go do that if we can be serving Christ with brand new baby believers? So I encourage all of you, if you are not already tied in with someone, get tied in. And start studying the, the Word of God together. It will be exciting, I guarantee it. That's not part of the sermon night, so I'll, I'll get around to real preaching now. How's that? In the 1980s, there, there was a song on the pop charts. It was called Break My Stride. Some of you, if you're back from the 80s like I am, you may know the song. Or The lyrics go, ain't nothing gonna break my stride. Nobody gonna slow me down. Oh, no. I got to keep a moving. Ain't nothing gonna break my stride. I'm running and I won't touch ground. Oh, no. I got to keep on moving. That, that song expresses the, the fierce individualism of uh, the, the Americans' value. You know, we want to be on our own. Nothing will slow us down. The song itself goes on to how a woman that left him isn't going to break his stride. He can keep going. We want to be individualistic. We don't want to depend on anybody. Yeah, Americans are not alone in, in that individualism and in valuing that. It, it's so often a human trait, a, a fallen human trait. We, we, we don't need anyone else. We, at least that's the way we want to see things. We, we don't need others to help us deal with whatever life throws at us. We, we tend to try our best to handle things on our own. Now, I don't expect Jacob was dancing a 1980s pop tune as he and his family were heading back to Canaan here. But, but he certainly was leaning on this principle of his own self-sufficiency. Nothing was going to break his stride. In, in fact... What caused stress for Jacob last week when we looked at the first part of chapter 32 and what leads into the text this evening is that something seemed like it might be breaking that stride that he was on. As I mentioned, Jacob's on his way home after 20 years being outside the promised land, finding refuge with his uncle Laban from the, the murderous intent of, of his brother Esau. Jacob is returning back to Canaan. During those 20 years, Jacob was married four ladies. Now we have Rachel, Leah, uh, Bilhah, and Zilpah. The, the surrogate uh, wives that were maids became wives as well. He has 11 sons and a daughter. He's accumulated great wealth. He has herds and flocks and servants. Outwardly, as Jacob is coming back to Canaan, he's a very different man than he was 20 years ago when he left with only a staff. Inwardly, as we discussed last week, there's been some transformation as well. As, as Jacob fled 20 years earlier, God revealed himself to Jacob just on the edge of the promised land there before he left at Bethel. Actually, it's not on the edge, it's in the promised land. But, but God revealed himself and Jacob became a true worshiper. And there's been flashes in, in Jacob's life over the 20 years where we've seen Jacob recognize that God has been fulfilling the promises to him. Uh, of course, most time, though, we've seen Jacob depend more on his own wits than he has on God. That was particularly the case last week in the first part of 32. Having arrived at the edge of Canaan, Jacob, you may remember if you were here, set camp up at a place where he saw the angels of God. God gave Jacob a visible reminder that he is interacting with his world. Jacob made camp in that location. They even named the place two camps, most likely for the angel's camp and his own camp. They're in the same location. 
It's in this place that, that Jacob learned that his brother Esau was coming. And Esau was bringing 400 men along. And Jacob feared the worst. Assuming his, he assumed that his brother's coming to end his life. After 20 years, the opportunity's finally come and Esau's coming to, to get him. Jacob immediately moved into action, if you recall. He, he worked out a plan where he thought he might be able to appease his brother with gifts and, and flattery. While he was working on the details of those plan, that plan, Jacob did ask God to deliver him from Esau. He, he prayed and asked God to, to help him. But really, it was more a request for God to help Jacob with his efforts than it was a cry for God to control the situation. It, it wasn't really a cry of faith in God's sovereign control. It was a cry of, God, help me. In other words, God, bolster my plans. Fill in the gaps where I need more. It wasn't really a trust in God's plans of things. As, as we left Jacob last week, we recognized that the self-dependent trait that Jacob has is far too familiar with us. We also don't want anyone to break our stride. We don't want to depend on anyone. We, we depend on God a lot in the same way as Jacob, asking God to fill in the holes in our ability. You know, give us what we might be lacking. We, we struggle instinctively with self-sufficiency. We, we don't want anything to break our stride. Well, that's exactly what God may have to do. God may have to break our stride. He may have to break our self-sufficiency so that we depend on him fully. It's only then that the blessings that God is prepared to give us will come. Blessings that, that we probably desire, but we don't want them in God's way. God has to break us down before he can bless us. That may be what God has to do. That's definitely what God had to do for Jacob. Let's turn back to Jacob's life, and let's work our way through the record here of God breaking Jacob so that God can bless Jacob completely. We left Jacob in God's camp last week. That was the, the main point, if you remember. The bookends was that Jacob is in God's camp. We also saw Jacob had to put things in motion to, to send this gift of appeasement to, to Esau. But Jacob remained in God's camp. Moses made that quite clear, repeating it multiple times. We pick up the flow this evening in verse 22, where we have Jacob's isolation. His isolation is made complete here. Look at verse 22. Now he, that's Jacob, arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Really, this is just a summary of Jacob's clan crossing this, this river, the Jabbok River. It's just a quick summary, but, but Moses gives it here because it accomplishes two things for us. One, it completely isolates Jacob. We, we know that whatever comes next, it happens when Jacob is all alone. His entire family now, everyone has gone. Before dark, he had sent his gift across with the servants that were dealing with that. It seemed like he maybe sent some of his flocks across. Well, now he sends everybody else across. Everybody is on the other, other side. His gift of 550 animals, the remaining flock, the servants, and all the family. It could be that the gift even started making its way towards Esau before nightfall. We don't know, but, 
But during the night, for some reason, Jacob decides that he'll send his family across, his wives and his children. He is the only one left on the original side of the river. He is isolated from everyone. Not only do these two verses isolate Jacob here, but they also ground everything that has to come in reality. Moses is doing that for us as well. He's making sure we understand this is grounded in reality. This river is a physical place. There's real water here flowing. There's, there's real dirt and mud. The camp is a physical place. The, the people that Jacob sent across are real people. It's important that we see this event that's come grounded in reality because the event that's about to happen prompts all kinds of questions in our minds. The one question that, that Moses does not want us to have, though, the, the question that Moses seems intent in ensuring we will not ask is whether this really occurred. He's grounding it here in reality. It happened in a physical place on a night when there was a lot of real action already occurring, an action that involved a lot of people crossing this river. That's the isolation aspect that, that we begin with. From there, we flow into Jacob's injury. Jacob's injury. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he, that would be the, the man, saw that he had not prevailed against him, that would be Jacob, he, that, that man, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. I tried to help us go there because reading verse 25 is a little bit like sometimes I tease my wife. She's very good at giving pronouns without antecedents, so you can't quite figure out who's the he that we're talking about. Especially here, we have two he's, and they jump back and forth. So, so basically, you have this man wrestling with Jacob and then touches Jacob's thigh, and Jacob's thigh is dislocated. Now, Moses never explains to us why Jacob was left alone, why he stayed on the original side of the river after everyone passed. Why is he there? Moses doesn't tell us. Rather, Moses' concern is to demonstrate that Jacob suddenly has an assailant, and there's no way this assailant could be anyone from his own group. All of his servants are on the other side of the river. All of his sons are on the other side of the river. Everyone is on the other side of the river before this man attacks. Sometime after everyone else left, Jacob was attacked. There's a physical fight, a, a wrestling match that, that extended, we're told, until daybreak. The, the word that we have translated wrestled is it, used only in these two verses in, in the entire Bible. Most likely, Moses picked this particular word because it has a very similar sound in Hebrew to Jacob and, J, and Jabbok. Moses is doing some word plays with the sounds. Jacob, Jabbok, they sound alike, and this word for wrestling does as well. It's a word that's built on the word for dust, and it carries the idea of get dusty. You know, wrestling, they're getting dusty. They're, they're down in the, the dirt. That's the picture conveys. Jacob's grappling around in the dust with this unknown assailant. They're wrestling together. Now, I know um, some of the boys... Kids have wrestled. I, I know, Nate, you wrestled, right? My kids wrestled. When you're wrestling, you're down on the ground, aren't you, Derek? You're down rolling around. Well, that's what Jacob's doing here. He's wrestling, except it's not on nice, clean mats. It's in the dust. It, it's obvious that this man who attacked Jacob 
is the man he's fighting with, but beyond that, we have no indication of, of who he is. Not initially. He's just a man that attacks Jacob, and, and they wrestle. The, the fact that the wrestling match lasts until daybreak tells us the fight was long. It also tells us it, it was indecisive. There was no pin. It, there was no victory. Jacob was unable to overpower the antagonist, but neither was Jacob overpowered. Apparently, the impression you get is hour after hour, these two men just rolled back and forth grappling with one another. At least that is until the unknown assailant reaches out and touches Jacob in the socket of his thigh and dislocates his hip. In our minds, we probably picture some stunning blow, right? A sudden blow to Jacob's hip that dislocated it, causing this decisive change in status. Yet the term that Moses uses is a very mild term. It's a common term that just literally means touch, generally. For example, in Genesis 3.3, Eve used this word to tell the serpent that God said that she and Adam should not eat from the tree of knowledge of good or evil or even touch it. Now, she added that, we know, to the, the God's command, but it, it was just don't touch it. It wasn't strike or anything like that. The, the word that Moses uses here, this word for touch, that's the first indication that there may be more to this unknown assailant than, than meets the eye. All he needs to do is touch Jacob on the hip to dislocate it. The, the fact that Jacob overpowered, or has not o- overpowered him throughout the night is not due to Jacob's might. This, this man just touched his hip and that was enough. Jacob really could have been at this man's mercy at any point. The man obviously has power that he has not used up to that moment. Having affected the, the, the balance of the fight here with his touch, the, the man now speaks to Jacob for the first time. And in the next four verses, we, we find Jacob's blessing, his blessing. Verse 26. Then he, this is Jacob speaking now, says, let me, or I mean the man rather, the, the man speaking says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, the man, says to Jacob, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. He said, this would be the man, your, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So having injured Jacob, this man having Jacob really at his mercy, the man asked Jacob to allow him to leave. It seems, again, backwards, doesn't it? Jacob's the one injured, he's the one vulnerable, but the man asked Jacob to let him go. And the reason that the man gives is because the dawn is breaking. That's one of those times where question mark immediately goes up in our mind. Why? Why does that matter? We, we've wondered who this man was from the moment he showed up, now we're forced to wonder why he came in the dark and, and why does he want to depart when the dawn is breaking? Is there a chance that Jacob might recognize him in the, the light that he couldn't recognize him at night? I don't know. I don't know about Jacob recognizing the man, but it does seem, as you read through here, as if with the coming of the dawn, awareness begins to dawn on Jacob as well, who he's wrestling with. Because Jacob responds to this man's request to, to let him go. 
He responds with a statement that he will only release the man if the man gives him a blessing. Jacob seems to be understanding this man can bless me. The fact that Jacob believes that he has the ability to give that blessing suggests that he's beginning to recognize that this man is more than a mere man. But the response the man gives Jacob with Jacob's demand for a blessing, the, the response that he gives is to demand Jacob give him his name. Jacob says, give me a blessing. The man says, give me your name. It's only as we pause for a moment and think about that request that, that we start to see the significance of the interaction here. How does Jacob respond to the request for his name? What does Jacob do when the man says, give me your name? He gives it, right? He says, Jacob. He, he gives his name. He says, Jacob. Do you remember what Jacob's name means? Jacob was given his name back in Genesis chapter 25, verse 26, at his birth, like all babies are, are given their names. But that name had a specific meaning to it. If you remember back in that, when he was born, he was, remember, the second of two twins. What was he doing with his brother Esau? He was grabbing his heel. Before they were born, the name literally means heel catcher, the one who grabs the heel. Before they were born, we were told that the, the brothers struggle in Rachel's womb, and that struggle was evident from the, the moment of birth. And then as, as Jacob developed that, that name, that, that struggling, grabbing the heel, not letting go, that the name came to symbolize his deceptive nature. He wouldn't do things in, in an upright fashion. He was willing to grab that which was not rightfully his. Jacob was one who developed this character that we saw that was willing to overreach grabbing for that which he had not been given already. Well, by forcing Jacob to state his name, Jacob is forced to state his nature. He has to confess who he is. Even in this chapter up to this point, Jacob has been trying to grasp an appeasement from his brother, an appeasement that he had not earned. He has never admitted that he's done anything wrong, but he tried to grasp an appeasement. He's trying to use his manipulative skills to achieve the end he desires. Remember, we enter this chapter recognizing that Jacob's outward circumstances had changed greatly while he was outside the land. The question has always been, how much has he changed inwardly? His name Jacob reflected who he had been. That, that was his prior character, the schemer, the deceiver. Is that who he still is? Surprisingly, the man states that from this moment onward, Jacob will have a new name, the name Israel. The man says the reason, because Jacob has striven with God and with men and had prevailed. Well, we certainly know Jacob's striven with men. His whole life has been filled up with striven with men. It's full of examples of human strife. Yet when has Jacob striven with God? Well, apparently all night, Jacob has wrestled with one who has the authority to pronounce this new status on Jacob. He's no longer Jacob. He's now Israel. It, it may have been a surprise to Jacob that he wrestled with God. But, but then again, maybe not such a surprise. Remember, 
He, he knew he was in the location where God was interacting already. This was God's camp. Plus, God had spoken to Jacob before and when he was leaving that land in that vision at Bethel. And, and he was leaving. The Lord himself had stood at the top of the ladder that Jacob saw and spoke to him. And, and recently, the Lord had spoke to him again. The Lord told him, leave Laban and, and return to the land. Furthermore, Jacob certainly should remember that his grandfather Abram had, had been visited by, by men, remember, of great power. Back in Genesis 18, there were three men that came to, to tell Abram that, that Sodom was going to be destroyed. Two of those men turned out to be angels, but the third one turned out to, to be the Lord himself, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. As the night wore on, Jacob may have thought of these events and begun to recognize the identity of the man, even before his hip was touched. I don't know. For what it's worth, I, I believe this man was another pre-incarnate um, appearance of Christ. Now, I, I do not believe he was one of the angelic messengers that Jacob saw in the camp. I believe Jacob didn't strive with the angels of God. He strove with God because... We're told the messenger says or that, that he is driven with God. Plus, in, in verse 30, when we'll get there in just a moment, Jacob himself understands that this man was God. This is the uh, pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before the birth, making an appearance on earth to interact with man. Let's take a minute or two and consider the name that Jacob's received, the name Israel. Clearly, that name means a, a lot in the Old Testament. Literally, it, the name means God contends. It, it, it does not mean contend with God. That's what Jacob had just done, contend with God. The name just means God contend. So technically, that's not what occurred at the moment. God did not contend with Jacob, Jacob with God. But the name was enough really just to invoke the memory of the night. It, it reminded Jacob or Israel uh, of the night that he wrestled successfully with God. He certainly did not conquer God, but he did hang on to God. He hung on to God, and when it appeared that the man was about to depart, Jacob hung on, even when it hurt, because his hip was dislocated. He was in pain. Even when it hurt, Jacob hung on. He, he would not let go of God until he received God's blessing. Now, we should remember Moses is writing this for the nation that is given the name what? Israel. He's writing it for the nation. They're, they're becoming this newly formed nation of Israel. They're, they're heading towards the promised land from, from Egypt. I've mentioned that I know several times, but, but we can't forget, forget that that's who Moses is writing to. They're traveling to the promised land after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. They're heading to the land that God had promised Abraham would be their homeland. And they're moving as the people of Israel. Why they are called Israelites rather than Abrahamites or Isaacites or Jacobites would be a question that they would have. After all, their, their forefathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why are we called Israelites? What was significant about that name? For this group of people that Moses is writing to, this night when Jacob's name was changed to Israel was a key event in their history. It informed them that their name was to be a constant reminder to hold on to God. They were God's people. 
As one commentator expressed it, the, the patriarch, Jacob, he portrays the, the real spirit of the nation to engage in persistent struggle with God until emerging strong in the blessing. Israel as a nation will, will never gain the victories in, in the manner of other nations. It's not by their own might, it's not by their own wits, it's not by their own efforts. Rather, they're to understand they will gain their victories through divine blessing if they hold on to God. Well, Jacob here, he responds to the name change in, in verse 30 with a, a request for the man to, to yield his, his name to Jacob as well. Um, I flipped my page, that's why I can't see it. He, and now, instead of, of doing as requested, however, the man just, or in verse 29, I'm sorry, not 30, Jacob responds, request, but rather than responding, the man just blesses Jacob. We, we don't have the words of the blessing. We, we can probably assume that the words are basically a repeat of the promises of God, that, that God has given Jacob, now Israel. As he's re-entering the land, we would expect the blessing goes with that, that promise he's already been given. But now he's Israel. God is has promised Jacob many things, family, prosperity, land, and most of all, God has promised his presence to be with him. So likely this blessing that we have referenced there in verse 29, the angel blessed, or not the angel, the man blessed him. Most likely that is a continuation assuring Jacob that he could trust God to do all that God has promised to do because God is with him. In the final three verses, we have what I'm calling then Jacob's legacy, the legacy from this night. Verse 30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the sock of the thigh because he touched the sock of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Jacob, if you remember, had named the camp Mahaniam. That, that was the word that just meant two camps. But now he names this place Peniel, a name that literally means the face of God, Peniel. Jacob recognizes that, that he has seen God because he wrestled with God throughout the night. Furthermore, Jacob knows that, that God has blessed him because he's still alive. He's seen God and lived. That's a blessing. We should note that, that Jacob had asked the man for his name, but the man had never given it. And instead of protesting or asking again, then the impression that we have is, is Jacob turned from his request, content, content to simply rename the place of his encounter. He never got the man's name, but he renamed the place. And, and we can probably take that as an indication of submission to God. He's content with what God has given him and has no discontentment with what God has not given him. Plus, we, we should remember that amid Jacob's scheming last week, what was trying to figure out how he could avoid the assumed death that they thought was approaching with Esau. Jacob prayed for deliverance. Well, the fact that he knows he's seen God and he's still alive should serve as an assurance that, that God has answered that prayer. 
Why should Jacob fear seeing Esau's face when he's seen God's face and still lived? He's been face to face with God and lived. Being face to face with Esau is nothing. Of course, Jacob will have to depend on God completely now. Moses makes the point that Jacob is limping as he crosses the river. He has to meet Esau, the, the, the brother he's feared, now as a disabled man. As he crosses the Jabbok River, he has a pronounced limp. There, there's no way that he will be able to fight if necessary. But the fact that he immediately crosses the river in this injured state as the sun is rising, that, that demonstrates that his confidence is no longer in himself. His confidence is now in God. Several commentators that I looked at observed over the, the many years that this passage has been studied that the sun went down one night on Jacob and it rose the next day on Israel. He's a changed man. The, the question of what kind of man he was inwardly is finally answered. Jacob Israel is a changed man. He, he's changed by a, a personal encounter with God. Uh, of course, we really can't end this chapter without noting the, the strange final verse where Moses speaks about this dietary tradition that, that's continued in the nation to this day. I don't know, maybe some of you have family traditions that, that you do because grandma always did this, this way, or, or maybe grandma did it this way because she told you this is how her grandma did it, and this is just the way it's done in the family. Our family does X because this is what we do. Well, is someone like, something like that in this final verse Moses references here a tradition, apparently a tradition in Israel. Now, remember, there's 400 years between this event and Moses' writing. Moses is writing to the nation that had been slaves for 400 years, so 400 years plus a little bit of life in between. He's writing about tradition that Israel practiced, the, the whole nation. They, they did not eat the sinew or the tendon of the hip. This isn't a restriction that, that the nation receives as part of the Mosaic law. It, it's not a matter of obedience to God. Instead, it's a tradition, and Moses informs the people that this tradition that we all have, that none of us will eat this part of the meat, it dates back to this event, this night in our ancestor's life when he wrestled with God, and God changed him. We're going back those 400 years with that therefore of verse 32. There, maybe there were thousands of Israelites who had lived their entire lives never eating the, the, the tendon of the hip and having no idea why. It's what Grandma did. We don't know why Grandma did it. Grandma did because her Grandma did it. We don't know, but we don't eat this. Moses says, this is why. Jacob was injured in his hip when he wrestled with God. And to remember that event, we have our tradition. Well, more than simply informing the nation, though, of the background of tradition, that this final editorial note, it bookends the strange event once again back into history. Remember, Moses grounded it in history at the beginning, naming a physical place where this happened. It happened in the physical river. Well, now Moses ends the event by tying it to a very real tradition. Everyone in the nation would know that this is the way they behaved. They, they did not eat this tendon. 
As I said, it, it's tradition that goes beyond the, the living memory of anyone in the nation, so it could be that they may not know why it's their tradition, but they can verify it's their tradition. 400 years ago, their ancestors wrestled with God, and a tradition sprung up that they're still practicing. Jacob was changed by the encounter. He learned to hold on to God and God's blessing rather than depending on himself. Will the nation remember the lesson as they enter the promised land? Will they hold on to God rather than depending on themselves? Every time they skip this piece of the meat, they should ask themselves that question. And of course, that really is a question for us as well. Will we remember the lesson that Jacob learned? Our natural tendency, as I said, is if to kind of sing along with that pop song, ain't nothing gonna break my stride. Nobody's going to slow me down. Oh no, I gotta keep moving. That's that spirit of independence. We instinctively, in our, our sin nature, we want to believe we can solve all our own problems. We, we don't have to de depend on anyone. Yet this pivotal event in Jacob's life should teach us otherwise. We are to depend on God. That's how we receive blessings from God. The, the lesson that Jacob's wrestling match confronts us with is the hard reality that, that God may have to break us down before he can bless us. God may have to break us down before he can bless us. Ain't nothing going to break my stride. God may have to break our stride. Nobody's going to slow me down. God may have to slow us down. God may have to break us down before he can bless us. I guess the question that, that I will ask as we end this evening is, how much will God have to break us down so they can bless us? How far will God have to go? Will a, a simple touch that dislocates our hip do it, or will he have to go even more extreme? We, we certainly want God's blessing. I, I believe that. The desire is, is there because it's implanted by our Savior. We want God's blessing. We have a desire through our faith in Christ to become Christ-like. That desire is a blessing from God. We have a desire through our faith in Christ to, to serve him. That is a blessing from God. We have a desire through our faith in Christ to, to find joy in our salvation. That is a blessing from God. All of these desires are blessings from God. And we want the things that come from the blessings of God. But are we willing to cling to God rather than depending on ourselves? Last week, we observed that, that we are all more like Jacob than we care to be. We can resonate with him because our natural instinct is to depend on ourselves and then beg God to fill in the gaps when, when he's needed. What we need is for God to break us down so that we become more like Israel than Jacob. We, we need the character change that comes from hanging on to God. Yet to experience that character change, God may have to break us down. He may have to break us down before he can bless us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed do the work in each of us that needs to be done. And may we be receptive, men and women so that we can be quick to receive the blessings that you're able to give because we're moldable by you. 
May we lose our independent spirit and replace it with a completely dependent spirit on our God. It's in Christ's name, our Savior, we pray. Amen.